0: agorist nexus podcast i'm brandon i've got my great co-host dag with me how you doing dag
1: i'm doing excellent man how you doing
0: i'm great before we get started we could really use your support at Agoras nexus um we've got a donate page we're on subscribe star all that we've got affiliate link you can get great services and also support our page at the same time those are on like all the article and podcast uh, pages so if you go there we'll have all those links for you and yeah. Without further ado, we've got a very special guest. I'm extremely honored to have on Victor Komen. He's the the man behind Copub Co, which published Conkin's uh, work and OG Agorist. I mean, I'm surprised he's not. He should be famous all over the place and on many different podcasts, in my opinion. And so, without further ado, how how you doing, Mister Komen?
2: I'm doing great. How are you doing?
0: I'm great. It's it's so great to have you on. I have to say, this is probably the one podcast that that I've been really looking forward to. So um, I just really appreciate you coming on today.
2: Well, it's a pleasure to be here. So if you could tell
0: us about how you got into agorism and like how you met Sam.
2: Well, I'm I'm a paleo agorist, I guess. I was there before. I was there at the creation when. Uh, When Sam spoke the word and and the word became the Agora. This is going back to like 1974, 73, 74. Uh, I was a student at San Jose State University. And I was wandering through their bookstore and they had some uh, magazines there. And I picked up something called The Alien Critic by Richard E. Geis, which was a science fiction fan uh, magazine. And he reviewed books, he reviewed magazines, basically anything that uh, wound up in his mailbox, he reviewed. So uh, I started reading that, and I enjoyed it. And I uh, saw a review of something called New Libertarian uh, Notes uh, back then, and it discussed a an interview with Robert A. Heinlein. Well, I was a big Heinlein fan, so I thought, well, I got to get a hold of this uh, New Libertarian Notes and get the... Uh, get the interview. Now I had, I think I had already heard that Heinlein considered himself a libertarian or people had accused him of being one, uh, one or the other. So I wasn't unfamiliar with the term, but I was certainly unfamiliar with uh, Sam and uh, everyone there. So he, I ordered a few copies. He said, well, I've only got like two or three uh, of the issues but here they are and uh, if we can get copies of the rest I'll, I'll send them to you. So I read that and I read the rest of the magazines surrounding the interviews and I thought it was pretty cool. So uh, we started writing back and forth and um, you know when, when he decided to to move out to Los Angeles from New York where he was living in a place called the anarcho slum. Uh, uh, he, uh, asked if I could help him, uh, find a place and, or, or at least, you know, let's meet up. So at the time I was living across from UCLA in a, uh, in a reconverted women's bathroom in a former sorority house, which had now become a rooming house. Um, and they dropped by, and it was uh, Sam Conkin, it was uh, Charles Curley, who wrote uh, The Coming Prophet in Gold, uh, when uh, gold was still illegal. He was uh, famous for uh, bringing an ounce of gold into the halls of Congress, which at that time was considered contraband. And so it'd be like bringing a pound of pot into the uh, into the floor of Congress today, although, well, maybe 10 years ago. So... Uh, and J. Schulman, Shulman, who wrote, uh, who was to come to write alongside Knight and the Rainbow Cadenza. But at the time, he was renowned mostly for conducting the Heinlein interview and for uh, getting into a phone call with Ayn Rand, where I don't remember, one or the other hung up on the other. <laughs> so um, they decided that they were going to live in uh, California, and the person who picked them up at the airport and drove them around looking for an apartment was none other than a libertarian pot-smoking troubadour named uh, Dana Rohrabacher, and uh, he found them a place to stay, which was being managed by uh, Chris Schaefer, another libertarian, and I was... It became known as the Anarcho Village, and that was at 1838 East 7th Street. Now, there's no more uh, – I don't think there are any more Anarcho villagers there. They're just, just, just an apartment now, a sad, lonely, rundown apartment built in the 1930s. But uh, eventually, I moved in there. Neil moved in there. Uh, Charles Curley moved in there, um, Steve Tymon, who was to become a, a um, Hollywood B-movie screenwriter, uh, and Nick Yermakov, who under the name Simon Hawk wrote a lot of the Time War, I, I think all of the Time War novels. So it was a very productive place. And uh, immediately upon hitting the ground, uh, Sam started working on um, converting New Libertarian Notes, which was a occasional magazine into New Libertarian Weekly, which uh, we churned out uh, an issue every week for two years. So that's, uh, I think it worked out to 101 issues uh, because we took a, a week off uh, each year. But uh, that was an interesting time because we would all get together you know we'd be writing uh sam would be typesetting it i would be laying it out uh you know other people would be contributing artwork and uh we'd get it all together we get it printed on a monday we would get it folded uh, in an archaic uh, folding machine and uh we would address the labels with this old mimeograph type address a graphic or something and, we uh, we slick postage on them and mail them out. So it was very hardcore, uh, uh, activism going on there in the mid to late seventies.
1: Can you tell me a little about the anarcho village? Like, you know, just a brief, you know, what is it or how to come into being?
2: Well, uh, as I said, uh, Chris Schaefer was, uh, um, the manager and whenever there would be an opening if so if one of us uh, wanted to join up we did sam was the first one there and uh um, unless well i don't know i guess so uh sam and and neil got separate rooms and it's just a it's just a small apartment i mean if you look it up on google maps it's just this rundown thing uh but It was full of libertarians and, you know, people wanted to be uh, where the action was and that kind of uh, intellectually was where the action was. And it was a, a movement nexus of sorts. And we all got involved with, or at least some of us got involved with the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society. So every Thursday, we'd uh, hop in a couple of cars and drive out from Long Beach to Burbank to uh, attend meetings there. And uh, that was fun. And, you know, we got people like uh, uh, Jerry uh, Pornell to be upset with us being all libertarian and stuff in front of them. <laughs> but uh, we, we were a good crowd and we made a lot of friends and we went to science fiction conventions. We went to libertarian conventions. Um, we organized a few and uh, it was, it was all pretty heady stuff going on at that time. Went to protests. Uh, we, we I think we picketed Jimmy Carter's or his wife, or something, when she was in Beverly Hills, uh, stuff like that. Anti-tax uh, protests at the federal building in Westwood, and between all that, we'd be uh, you know going to movies and uh, oh, uh, and Chris Schaefer, the manager, also managed a a one-screen theater a couple of blocks away called the Art Theater. So he would arrange for uh, movies of interest. Uh, one time we went; uh, r- they played rollerball, and uh, uh, the director was there, Norman Jewison, and we got into discussions about the the corporate underpinnings of of the uh, world in that movie, and that was pretty interesting stuff. So uh, that's was what it is. I I moved in there at one point, I think in 17... 17- 70s, late 76, I think, and um, living like next door to Sam and a couple of doors down from Neil. And then there was another guy named Tom Celine who was like a, a acid head, a libertarian OTO member. Uh, and uh, that was pretty fascinating stuff. Some of what I got from listening to him, I worked into my novel, The Jehovah Contract. So that was a good source of inspiration. And in fact, a lot of inspiration came from uh, hanging around Sam and uh, so on. Sam made one casual remark uh, one time when he was a little drunk in the back of a car. And he said, uh, you know, why don't those Catholics who are so anti-abortion, why don't they just go run around to the abortion clinics and scoop up all the fetuses and, and raise them as their own? And from that, I got the idea to write Solomon's Knife, which was about a doctor that um, secretly performs trans options, which is taking a fetus out of a woman who doesn't want to be pregnant and putting it into a woman who does. And she gets caught and the courtroom trial is chock full of libertarian stuff. So it was a very... Uh, very energizing atmosphere there, like any Bohemian uh, world would be. And can it was definitely kind of, Bohemian. Sorry.
0: Can you kind of tell us how it how it evolved and 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 then later how you started uh, Co.?
2: Oh sure. Uh, well, uh, Sam wrote uh, New Libertarian Manifesto in in the early '80s. I think like 1980. And he self-published it in uh, under the name Anarkosamiz Publications, and I think he printed maybe a thousand or two thousand copies, and he sold or gave away most of those. And you know, when when he ran out of copies, um, I was making money at the time because I was working at uh, uh, a, a um, hobby kip Kit company called Ravel, which was located in Marina del Rey of all places because it was built there in the 40s when it had just been a swamp, but now it became rather pricey real estate. Uh, so I said, Well, hey, I'll, I'll publish it. I'll, I'll publish it under the title of Komen Publishing. And Sam said, ah, Why don't you shorten it? Why don't you call it Copubco? Okay, that sounds good. And because uh, he was good at coming up with you know, neologisms and coming up with uh, contractions and portmanteau words and so on. So uh, he helped a lot of us come up with uh, things that we wound up using. So I republished um, another 2,000 copies of uh, New Libertarian Manifesto in the same sort of 8.5 by 11 folded uh, format. And when I ran out of those even though i still have a few copies left but you know when i figured it was time for a a new edition which was around what 2014 or earlier i published a 25th anniversary edition uh in in standard paperback form through lightning source so it's now a print on demand uh book one of the things that um
1: i really like about uh, the new libertarian manifesto i think i have that 25th anniversary edition but I really like how it's got the critiques in the back of it. It's really like the second half of the book um, where for anybody who hasn't read it. uh, Basically it has, you know, Murray Rothbard and um, a couple other people actually um, write in there as their critique, you know, of the book. And then Sam actually responds in a lot of instances as well. And I really like that because it's like, Hey, like, here's my idea. You know, like, I'm not afraid if you challenge it, you know, Um, is that something that's common? I've never seen a book do that before.
2: Yeah, and that was, uh, I took those from Strategy of the New Libertarian Alliance, uh, number one, I think, in which he had sent out the book to uh, get their reviews or their critiques, and he published them along with his his comments. So that was uh, a lot of SNLA, number one. So I figured I could move that from that obscure, <laughs> out-of-print uh, Uh, journal to uh, the book and preserve it that way. And and I think it's been well received that way because it's true. How many people uh, say, Hey, you know, give me your best shot, you know, based on your theory of libertarianism or your theory of liberty or your theory of the market and uh, you know, attack me and I'll, I'll, uh, (laughs) I'll explain myself when you're done. So, uh, I, I think it was important to include that because a lot of people might read the manifesto and say, yeah, but what about, and that's what um, uh, Murray Rothbard and Robert Lefebvre and filthy Pierre Erwin Strauss Jr. Uh, wrote about. And, and when you read them, you'll see each one takes a different tack based on their own uh, premises and their own uh, philosophies that they've, been promoting all these years and i think he gave spirited defenses uh and counter arguments to all of them
1: uh he, he does and it's it's really great because like as like the reader too it's it's just so nice to be able because yeah there are maybe a couple of things it's like, well, you know maybe the way you put this this or that and uh, you know being able to see other people have like maybe those same critiques or thoughts and then him being able to respond It really just it just really helps hash out the ideas a lot better, um, you know, for, you know, for myself or for the reader. So I just, I really think that was neat. I would love to see more people do that because it also just sort of shows more confidence in your ideas.
2: Yeah. And in his, uh, his proposed book, his unfinished magnum opus counter economics, uh, he was going to devote an entire section to critiques of agorism and counter economics and um, never got around to it beyond just a a brief uh, couple of paragraphs in the outline. I don't know if either of you have downloaded that and read it yet, but um, it's basically the six chapters that I could find of his because he gave me the manuscript. Um, There was supposed to be another four chapters floating around digitally somewhere On one of his computers, or one of Neil's computers, Neil Shulman's, uh, and uh, or on a on a disk somewhere, Sam gave me a bunch of archaic computers, uh, like a a PowerBook 150 and a PowerBook 1400. Uh, I can't even the screen on the PowerBook 150 doesn't even work, so I would have to find the a a monitor that connects to the obscure plug in the back of the PowerBook one fifty in order to see what's on the hard drive to see if the missing chapters of counter economics are there. And it's like it's like you know digging up the the tomb of Tutankhamun and trying to figure out the hier- hieroglyphics there. It's uh, it's a task.
0: Heck of a treasure hunt. And that was so, the that, that was counter economics, right? Is that right?
2: Yes, counter economics.
0: Yeah, I I love I love that book. I think one of the most important things that I took away from it was that um, that there is a silver lining to when the government uh, implements price controls,
1: <laughs>
0: and um, <laughs> that is that um, everybody in that in that sector that uh, that has those price controls um, they become a, they automatically become a, a, a counter economist and. I thought that was a a really good way of of, of putting it.
2: Right. And his his goal with that book was uh, almost uh, more psychological than economic. He wanted people to understand that there's no shame or guilt in doing things that the government doesn't approve of, that you're just performing basic human actions. And the fact that the government has decreed it to be uh, wrong... Uh, doesn't make it wrong. Uh, It just makes it uh, a little more difficult to pursue. But if you all stick together and you all recognize your uh, common interest in in defying state controls, then uh, you'll build this community of like-minded individuals. And at some point the government is unable to uh, enforce any of its edicts.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like morally, you know, legality doesn't equal morality, and uh, and I think I think agorism really is like I don't know. It, just, it fascinates me, and it's um it's a great way to uh, to peacefully you know tell them no. So
2: yeah, that's uh you know it's basically an anarchistic way of thinking, and but it's a a peaceful anarchistic way of thinking. You know, I, I what's really driving me nuts these days is every newsman and and woman on every station, you know, calls all these rioters anarchists. They're not anarchists. They're obviously you know, communist subversives and and nihilistic criminals. <laughs> you know, just uh, absolutely. Uh, there, it, it's there's nothing moral uh, about imposing yourself on somebody's property and and burning it uh, or or looting it that's there's there's nothing right-wing or uh, right-wing sam had a different definition of right and left uh there's nothing um what we would consider libertarian about that and i i don't i think they use they themselves use anarchy as the uh, cover for their uh, attempts to impose a new state on us. Uh, certainly when Chaz and Chad were first developed, the f- what's the first thing they did? They built a border and they uh, started collecting taxes. <laughs> they, there's, there's nothing anarchistic about that uh, utopia. Right. So, yeah. uh,
0: Can you kind of go into Sam, or your your opinion on on Sam's version of, of left and right? Because I think a lot of people get it. when you know Sam says you know that he's left of Rothbard. I think a lot of people and the left kind of um, that's how you can tell Sam's really good because I think both you know uh, right and left claim him, but um, but I think a lot of people get what he was saying uh, wrong. And um, if you could elaborate, that'd be that'd be great.
2: Sure. He uh, in one of his um, in one of his journals, uh, movement of the libertarian left, uh, tactics of the movement of the libertarian left. As, as the the longer we stayed in in the movement, the longer the titles of the journals got. Uh, so, tactics of the movement of the libertarian left. He once uh, published a uh, chart that uh, used. The classical, where we get left and right from the classical French Parliament um, notion. So, and in fact, it's it's copied today in Congress, uh, where the majority party sits on the right, and the uh, minority party sits on the left. But the classical, uh, he reinterpreted that. Because uh, he considered the state to be the right, the ultra-right, and uh, libertarians and anarchists and so on to be the left. And he created this uh, uh, scale, uh, a spectrum, and of course it's, it's dated now because it was uh, um, 40 years ago. <laughs> uh, hard, hard to believe that. Uh, in the eighties, uh, Sam was trying to revive the sixties, which was only twenty years back and Here we are in the twenties, talking about the eighties, which are forty years back but uh, that 's how time flies when you 're having fun um, i 'm going to try to find this m l l spectrum because it it will uh sort of explain where uh, where his head was yeah and if you
0: could if you could send me anything that 'd be uh yeah. Sure. Appreciate it too.
2: Let's see. Okay. So at the, at the, he broke it down into, um, uh, edit for time. Uh, he broke it, broke it, broke it down into, uh, far left, left, center, right, and far right. And in the far right, he had, at the very farthest right, he had police, military, and the ruling class. So they're the far right, and then all official holders, and uh, and then social democrats and uh, populists. I'm I'm heading toward the left now. You know, heading. Head, this is right. Statist Manchester Guardian uh, Peace and Freedom Party is center statist. Uh, so. Rudi Deutschke, his center statist in Germany, uh, Karl Hess, he considered a far left statist, which is still in the center. He, he puts him smack dab in the center.
0: Uh, oh wow! I, and Karl Hess became an anarchist later on, didn't
2: he? Yeah, yeah, but okay. he's still. But
0: back then, he considered him.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, he's he's still. Uh, he, has, he has Carl Hess and Ayn Rand and, and the Republican Libertarian Alliance right next to each other. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'll send this to you. It's kind of funny. Uh, and then, of course, you, to go to ultra-left, he's got Society for Individual Liberty, Bob Kephart, uh, Society for Libertarian Life. I don't think that's even around anymore. Uh, Robert LaFave. Movement of the Libertarian Left, New Libertarian, and at the very far ultra-left, agorist, anti-party, far-left is the New Libertarian Alliance. I'm, I'm. It kind of surprises me that he puts MLL uh, to the right of NLA, but I, that's that's his thinking. I, I think he th- he thought that a true libertarian uh, society was. Uh, beyond even an agorist society because uh, the agorism sort of exists if there's still a state. Uh, I think that was his reasoning. Okay. Uh, you know, it, it, it exists in defiance of a state and therefore a state had to exist.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. The whole point of agorism is so that we won't need agorism anymore.
2: Yeah. And that's when it becomes libertarian. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I'll, I'll send this to you. And um We'll, we'll talk about it a little later, probably, but I am in the process of uh, creating an agorist archive um, on the CoPubCo site, a subdomain of uh, CoPubCo. Um, and I'll send you the link to that. And uh, that's so far, that's got uh, New Libertarian Weekly, uh, PDFs of New Libertarian Weekly. They haven't been broken down issue by issue, uh, but I will. It's just a question of time. <laughs> Now uh
0: I another question here. I think a lot of now I'm really glad you clarified like what what his left meant. And I think a lot of people like the left and the right like to claim him, you know, both uh, the, the the modern sense of the left and the right. Can you kind of go into I mean obviously he's a free market uh, anarchist because he doesn't believe in the state and you know obviously he's free market because he's an agorist. but was he somewhat kind of what people would consider anarcho-capitalist. I mean, I don't know if he... He probably wouldn't appreciate the word... I don't know if he would appreciate the word capitalism or not, but um,
2: can you kind of go into like what his belief sure. systems he, were? He, he resisted using the term capitalism. Yeah. He sometimes used anarcho-capitalism, but he felt that that word, like libertarian, uh, had been sullied by... Misusage over the years, and that um, that it's a it's a Marxist term. I mean, it's it it basically capitalism basically means rule by wealth, which is almost the same as plutocracy. Um, And it was used by Marx in that way, and it's been misunderstood that way by uh, most people when they talk about capitalism in a favorable way. They're talking about a free market or a freer market. Um, When leftists, classical leftists, you know, socialists and so on, use capitalism, they mean a bunch of rich guys owning the government. Uh, So it it was due to that confusion that he didn't want to use the term capitalism when you could use the term free market. More important, when you say free market to people uh, of, of any stripe, Uh, they're more inclined to think that that's okay. Uh, Oh, well, it's, it's free freedom. Freedom's good. You know, people support freedom. People won't even, even communists won't support outright tyranny. If you put it in those terms, they'll say, well, no, communism frees you to pursue, uh, you know, your, your own dreams, uh, you know, in the absence of having to worry about money. (laughs) Uh, So, He preferred free markets, he preferred the Agora when libertarian got sort of sullied by the party. He thought that the party, the the libertarian party, had uh, promoted the name libertarian in a way that made it seem like libertarians are interested in seizing the state and controlling your lives too, uh, to make you freer. Um, So he discovered, you know, in like the Early seventies. Yeah, early the party made libertarians 70s. like standers. Yeah, right. Hi, I'm a libertarian. Oh, yeah, I've met your candidate. No, you haven't. I'm a libertarian.
0: Right. <laughs> so that. It, yeah, it, so that it, was, it, it's funny how people think that um, that a party of liberty running for authoritarian office makes any sense whatsoever.
2: Yeah. You know? Well, that was the uh, that was the contradiction that he saw early on uh, when he. Uh, in like 1972, he created the uh, Radical Caucus of the Libertarian Party. Maybe it was 74. I'm not sure which, but um, he tried to steer the party away from from being from actually uh, trying to gain, you know, political seats or anything like that. Um, I, I'm not too up on what exactly went on, but there are still people alive that uh, might remember. Uh, but I, I uploaded to the Agora Star. is It's archives.copubco.com if you want to go there. And you'll see that I've uploaded some very early uh, L, uh, LP, Radical Caucus flyers, and some early anti-party stuff. So um, uh, you can get more of an idea of what the his take was on the party but um, he was he was an early and strident opponent to the libertarian party and when uh, Dana Rohrabacher went into the Republican Party even though he was a close friend of Sam's uh, you know he is sort of he would rib uh, uh, Dana whenever he could about uh, being uh, a bundle of contradictions so uh, he, he he never, broke off with anyone because they were in the party or because they they differed he, he was a very friendly gregarious fellow uh so uh, he he tried to maintain peace amongst all the warring factions, and he was kind of at the interface. I mean, he he hung out with uh, C.S. Lewis Society members. He hung out with Tolkien Society members. He hung out with uh, uh, you know old old level old line socialists. He uh, uh, he was he was friends with anybody who would be cordial. <laughs> you know and and uh uh well-mannered and even even poorly mannered as long as they weren't uh, vicious or hostile or anything like that
0: yeah i heard he was very charismatic in that um lots of people, he got lots of people together to to collaborate and kind of like bring out the best in people is what i yeah, the the
2: only libertarian party that he really uh, was enthusiastic about was one where there was beer. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Beer and smoking aloud.
1: Yeah, I believe that that was one of um, Ross Bard's critiques in the new libertarian manifesto. He was saying that, you know, like, I guess he was kind of like saying like, no, we need some sort of political solution because that's how the government's run. So you're never going to be able to make it go away, you know, without, without being political and I I get where he's coming from, but I don't necessarily agree. And again, from a moral standpoint, like I don't think that trying to hold the reins of that organization is a good way to go either.
2: Yeah. Uh, Sam, you know, often quoted the old line that uh, reform in theory is perpetuity in practice. And that was, uh, you know, if you try to reform the state you become part of it, and uh, it's like power does corrupt.
1: No, I
2: mean, you just got to get in and change it from the inside. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, let's <laughs> do that. Well, I, I have a feeling what we're seeing right now is a bunch of uh, socialists who have positioned themselves inside the government uh, with the aim toward um, changing it from the inside for the worse. <laughs> so... Uh, I, mean, I guess that
1: is pretty much any action by a politician is changing it from the inside, right?
2: True. <laughs> Although I've often joked that uh, Donald Trump may be our our most libertarian president because he's hated by everyone. <laughs> he's, the left hates him. The elites hate him. The ruling class hates him. Uh, you know the the the. the The Wall Street may love him just because the stocks are going up, (laughs) but you know he's he's, his wife hates. uh, He's deregulating. He's deregulating things the way a a libertarian uh, party president would claim to. uh, You know, a candidate would claim to want to do it. And so I don't know. I he pisses people off, and I think that's uh, that's what's charming about him.
1: It's certainly entertaining. Like, I shouldn't have to say that I'm not a fan of Trump, you know, but mm-hmm. but I'm not. But it's certainly like just from somebody who does not care for politics, thinks the whole thing is a, is a joke anyhow, just to see yep. him just really make a joke of the whole thing. And everybody gets, you know, clutches their pearls about he's not presidential and this and that. And it's, just <laughs> like, it's just like, man, this is like, I'm, I really wish that this would get more people to see that it's all a joke. Mm. I was really hoping for that, but... I really don't know if that's actually what's happening. If anything, I think people are just getting more embedded in their side.
2: Well, you know, plus uh, change, plus Salam shows. Way back when, in 1976, uh, Sam was uh, decided to create something he called Counter Campaign '76. So we started the Vote for Nobody campaign. Now uh, Wavy Gravy had run Nobody for President. But uh we were of the opinion that nobody can hold more than one position in government. So obviously vote for nobody at every level is perfectly valid. So we ran the no vote for nobody campaign. Uh Neil and I, Sam was sort of just you know, behind the scenes doing the typesetting for us and, and Neil and I ran it out of a post office box in uh Malibu, which meant I had to hop on my uh hop in my beat up old Chevy to and uh, drive to Malibu from wherever the heck I was. I guess I was still in Westwood at the time uh, in that uh, women's restroom reconversion, which was great. I had two sinks and two so- toilets. What what could be better? Um, anyway, I, I, I would uh, go out there and get the mail and stuff. But uh, we got some pretty great uh, national notice. And um it, it it was good. It, it helped make the uh, 76 campaign uh, less dreary. And so we sort of revived it now and then. I mean, we didn't really do a big press thing uh, for the subsequent elections, but hey, I still got some of the buttons available. <laughs> Red, white, and blue, vote for nobody.
1: That's awesome. I love the vote for nobody thing. I didn't realize it went that far back. I mean, nobody tells the truth. Nobody will lower taxes. Yeah. Nobody deserves yeah.
2: your, uh, your life, your taxes or your life.
1: Yes. Yes. That's perfect. I love it. Well, we had
2: a lot of fun with it. <laughs> and at <laughs> some point I will scan those in and put those up in the archives too. I think there even might be some audio interviews with us if I can, get uh <laughs> reel-to-reel tape digitized i can get my cassettes digitized because i've got the converter here but i don't have a reel-to-reel tape converter so
1: i've got Projects. all my dad's old cassettes and they just they don't even like function anymore i don't know if they just got too hot i mean they're you know 40 years old uh mm-hmm. but uh but i've got a bunch of them. i try to listen to them and no, they don't even play maybe i just don't have a working tape player who knows
2: yeah, I, I was amazed that uh, when I converted some of my old cassettes from like the <clears throat> late 60s, that they still sounded great. Um, so I, I I must have preserved them well somehow because uh, they, they went through the machine well. I think only one got screwed up. Anyway, we're diverging from the uh, topic of today, <laughs> which is... Uh, uh Gorism and uh Copubco. So with Copubco, once Sam passed away in two thousand four, um, you know, he had given me uh the approval to bring out anything of his that i could <clears throat> as he, he really he didn't believe in copyrights anyway so technically anybody could you know publish his stuff because uh, he would have been as long as it's properly attributed to him there was one point where somebody had taken a short story he wrote called agent for anarchy changed it to um change the name to someone else you know a different author and just published it in a a science fiction magazine as agency man and sam got really bent out of shape about that because he he as long as he said as if they had just you know used my name that would have been great but they basically plagiarized it and committed fraud upon the reader uh, he thinks plagiarism is is fraud upon the reader, not fraud upon the author. Uh, so, uh, eventually, the magazine uh, issued a correction and uh, uh, retraction, or whatever, and uh, so the matter was settled. But he he strongly did not believe in copyright because that's a power granted by the state to an author or a publisher to withhold. Uh, knowledge, to to keep copies from being made. It's not the right to make copies. It's the right to <laughs> prevent anyone else from making copies. So uh, he didn't believe in any sort of states, uh, state control of intellectual property. I don't even know if he believed in intellectual property.
0: <laughs> Wendy McElroy writes a great article on uh, intellectual property abolitionism. And um, great article, and uh, she goes into like some of what um, Conkin thought, and yeah, he didn't didn't believe in.
2: Yeah, I know Steve Kinsella uh, wanted uh, me to get on some discussion panel about intellectual property or something like that uh, and present Sam's view. Uh, Anyway, uh, when Sam passed away, uh, you know, I I got uh, his manuscripts and his computers and a bunch of his uh, backup disks. And so when I could afford to, I brought out uh, an agorist primer, uh, New Libertarian Manifesto, and then uh, Counter Economics. Uh, His his goal was to write a book called Agorism Agorism. I keep saying it the wrong way. Uh, He preferred accent on the gore. <laughs> Agorism contra Marxism, which would have been his definitive rebuke of uh, Marx. But he never got around to it. I think he wrote an introduction.
0: Yeah, and then I guess um, Wally takes it away in, uh, in class theory, right?
2: Yeah, I guess he... I don't know if I've read that yet. I may have a copy, but I don't think I've I've read his class theory part of the book, but i should
0: but you you have um you have uh sam's notes on uh on class theory well he's
2: probably he's written some articles about it <clears throat> sorry about that he's written uh, i mean one of his issues of new libertarian notes was uh there s- special ruling class issue so uh, i'm sure he's mentioned it
0: yeah yeah it's got like um yeah, Class Theory is really cool. yeah, I mean you probably know more than I do for sure. But yeah, that Wally I can never ever pronounce his name. Wally Conger. Conger, um, yeah. Yeah, he, he did a really good job on it. So um and then he also mm-hmm. brings out some of Conkin's uh Conkin's notes too. So um but yeah, uh was there anything else you guys you guys want to talk about?
1: Um I uh I had a question. Um can you tell me what, uh, I guess, I, I didn't see an explanation of this, but I, I, but I read it. It was in a pamphlet, I guess, in the end of Alongside Night called, God, I feel like I can't pronounce it, Glomingerism. Glomingerism. yes. What was that?
2: That was just something that I came up with uh, I when I was writing The Jehovah Contract, which is a story about a, uh, an assassin, a dying assassin, given one last assignment, and that's to track down God and kill him. Uh, this was the age of televangelists and uh, so on. And I just got a little annoyed at all these various religious uh, groups going around and Hare Krishna and so on and Scientology, I thought hey, if L. Ron Hubbard can start his own religion, I'm going to start my own religion so I wrote up this pamphlet uh, about uh, you know how if you want to find God you, you've, God walks among us and you've got to walk up to every person you, say, you see and say uh, if thou art God I offer myself uh, uh, you know, and ask, ask you to uh, reveal yourself to me because I figured that would cause a lot of people to do some really stupid things. <laughs> and uh, Neil was amused by it, so he uh, included uh, Glominger's in um, uh, in one of his books and included the tract at the back of the book.
1: Oh, that's a trip. Yeah. And then um, it kind of sounds like this is the case from basically everything you said tonight, but I really hope the answer to this question is yes. Was Konkin nice in person?
2: Yes. Exceedingly awesome. nice in person.
1: Awesome. Uh, that makes you feel good. Yeah
2: the 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 only the only thing that could um, you know get him upset were 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 women. <laughs> you know uh, <laughs> he, he had several you know he had several um, um, romantic liaisons with women and and he would fall you know deeply uh, passionately romantically uh, you know. Gray Lensman style in love, and um, and uh, sometimes the women couldn't take that level of intensity. And uh, when they, you know, said, "Well, I'm 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 done here," then he'd get uh, very very hurt. <laughs> so, uh, Aww, and, and angry. <laughs> so, uh, but but usually, but you know, um, normal you know people interacting non romantically, uh he was great. He was he was uh, you know he'd hang out with uh, anyone, he'd have a beer, he'd have another beer, <laughs> have a less of beer. And um you know, he he was uh he was a great guy. You know, he played Dungeons and Dragons for God's sake. You know, what what could be more uh fanish than that? And even created uh you know an entire dungeons and dragons world from which he uh you know they would have uh long long DD games i think i played one round of DD in my life and i swore off because i couldn't understand why people were taking all this time doing that but of course he wrote the his world uh as a uh as an exercise in agorism and counter-economics. So in order to succeed in that Dungeons and Dragons world, you had to understand uh, the black market and the agora and, uh, and who can be bribed and who can't be bribed and uh, stuff like that. So for him, it was an educational uh, tool for his fellow d and That's cool. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I always uh, I thought D and D was really neat, but man, it seems too complex. I don't have the time.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Same here.
1: Um, uh, man, uh, that, that was that was great. Do you have any uh, any last uh, last uh, anything you want to say, or where can people find you? Or you got any projects you're working on?
2: Uh, well, there's Copubco, K O P U B C O dot com, where all of uh, Sam's extant uh, back issues of New Libertarian. New Libertarian Notes, New Libertarian, well, not New Libertarian Weekly, but that's available on archives.copubco.com now. Um, some of them I, I missed I, a couple of wrong settings, and some of them are searchable, and some of them are just images saved as a PDF, and that's entirely my fault, but it will be corrected uh, in time. And you can get some uh, MLL pamphlets there, and I'll upload the spectrum, the anti political spectrum there too as soon as we're done. Cool. <laughs> and my latest novel is Kings of the High Frontier. You can get it at uh, smashwords.com uh, or uh, or at Amazon as a Kindle book or an e
1: I will check that out. I do enjoy me some science fiction.
2: Oh, well, this is uh, this is the Atlas Shrugged of science fiction, if I do say so myself, and I have. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's, um, I
0: just wanted to add something real quick. Um, Wendy wrote an article about how Conkin thought that uh, science fiction was a great way for to get people into um, the libertarian movement, and that's cool. How a bunch of you guys, um, like you and Neil, uh, are uh, are like big, you know, pretty big science fiction writers. So, um.
2: well, there, there's an interesting story to that if we have the time, um, Sam when he came up with New Libertarian Notes, he was a science fiction fan and he was a libertarian. And he thought, well, wow, if I publish a magazine that appeals both to libertarians and to science fiction fans, I could get all everyone who is either a science fiction fan or a libertarian, and I'll have a huge readership. Well, you know the Venn diagram. What he wound up with was... The, that intersection of the two, that very small, narrow sliver of uh, science fiction fans who were already libertarians. And so that's why his, his, uh, his, his readership was always small and his publication was sporadic because he would publish whenever he had enough money to bring out another issue. Because subscriptions and ad revenue weren't making it. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for... Um, word, word to the wise.
1: <laughs> it is possible to be a little too niche.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's, there's intersectionalism that works and there's intersectionalism that doesn't. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, Mr. Komen, for, uh, for coming on.
0: Um, Victor Komen, everyone.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me. It was great to talk to you, and uh, I wish you continued success with uh, Agoras Nexus. And uh, I look forward to to hearing this when it's uh, when it's available.
0: Great. Yeah, true honor again. Well, that's our show today. Agoras Nexus out.